Welcome to Bible study. Glad you're here. It's good to see you tonight. We're going to take a moment and pray, and then we'll get started with our Bible study. So let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just the, the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that He is here to empower us. He's here to teach us. He's here to lead us, guide us into truth. We ask that we would be open and ready to receive what you might want to say tonight. God, I'd ask that you would challenge some old ideas that maybe are no longer useful or never were useful in us. And I pray that we would be open to change, we'd be open to seeing some new things, we'd be open to hearing some new things tonight. Be open, God, to what you want to do and what you want to say in our lives. So, Father, I I ask that you take hold of this time. I pray that we would let go of this time. And I just ask that you'd have your way. Uh, Lead us, guide us, change us, teach us. Empower us, encourage us, inspire us. God, we just ask for your help tonight. We've gathered in the name of Jesus. We ask that you be glorified. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good you guys doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, let's look into the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, some Bibles are located on the tables. Feel free to use the Bibles. Or the abundance of digital versions. If you have your own. Titus chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to find that. I'll get it in a second. Giving people a chance to get to Titus 1 first. I don't want to confuse the issue. Titus 1. Alright, verse 15. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Christian life. We're going to talk about what it is to be a believer, what it is to be a disciple, uh, just a little bit, but really looking at what it is to, to be with Jesus and how that looks and what that actually manifests as in our life. We're going to talk about internal things and external things. 
we love the external things because you can see, touch, feel, hear, whatever it is that uh, we want to look at, it's there. It's very external. So we like those kind of things. Uh, the internal things are a little tricky because uh, we have to look and really depend on God to help us to see things for as they really are. Uh, we, we are master deceivers about what's happening inside of us. And I know that sounds terrible, but it is kind of true for all of us that we have the ability to really deceive ourselves about who we are, about our motivations, about what's in our heart, what's in our mind, because we want to think certain things about ourselves that may or may not be true. And the reality of it may or may not be what we're thinking. And that's just us. I mean, that's just people. And I'm not picking on anyone. I'm not pointing out anyone. I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you that it, we've just become really good at uh, deceiving ourselves. We've been really good at pretending with ourselves and missing what's actually happening. So we have this internal, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, what goes on inside of us, and we have the external. That's what everybody else sees. That's what's happening around us. That's what we see of other people. And so uh, those two things are not always the same, right? And you know that. You know that there's some days where you're raging on the inside, but you have a smile on the outside because that's what people expect. And or that's something that you're not willing to share with the people around you, which is fine. That's up to you. And so you put on a different face than what's actually going on inside of you. All right. So the external doesn't really match the internal but it's providing for whatever thing that you want other people to see or that thing that you want other people to hear, that thing that you want other people to think of you. And so you're giving them this face so that you can do whatever's going on inside without being bothered by anything on the outside or however you want to see that. So uh, we all know that and we're all participants in that. We all take that and, and it happens all the time. Uh, there's certain things that are going on at home that you don't want to share at work. There's certain things going on uh, inside of you that maybe you don't want to share with the people around you or the person that you commute with or the person that you go to school with or whatever the case may be. Maybe there's things going on inside of you you don't want to share with your employees or your employer. Things going on inside of you that you don't want to make public knowledge. Okay, that's all. That's fine. That's the way it goes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just pointing out that it's important for us to really understand and, and take hold of that the external really doesn't always match the internal and the internal doesn't always match the external and this is the way it is. That's the human condition. And so that should tell you a few things, uh, not only about yourself because that's kind of obvious, but it's also tell you a few things about other people. And the fact that whatever you see going on with other people isn't always obvious. You might look at someone, they're really happy-go-lucky all the time, but maybe that's not really what's going on in their heart or what's going on inside of them. And, and that's okay, but that may also be a factor in behavior. That may be a factor in what's going on in their life and what you're actually experiencing uh, when you interact with them. So it, it's good to have that. It's good to have an understanding that just because you're seeing something or just because you're experiencing something with somebody doesn't mean that's what's actually happening in their life. And to not have that expectation 
I think is a positive thing in the sense that I, I think it's it's easier to throw a little more grace someone's way by realizing that you don't know what's going on. It's a little easier to throw some grace or mercy somebody's way when you realize there's probably things going on in their life that you have no idea about. And, and they may be bad things, they may be hard things, they may be harsh things, they may be hurtful things, it could be anything. And, and to just give somebody the benefit of the doubt when maybe they're rude or maybe they're short-tempered or maybe they say the wrong thing or maybe they don't do what you think they're going to do or whatever the case may be because you have certain expectations of people but let's say they didn't meet that expectation. Okay, well, I think it's good to have some grace because we don't really know what's happening. And, and don't assume you do. Don't assume or, or try to, to put meaning on something that you really have no idea about. Uh, if someone's in a bad mood, maybe there's a reason for that bad mood. If someone's short with you, maybe there's a reason they're short with you. And a little bit of understanding and a little bit of grace goes a long way with people if you can find it in yourself to extend that. And I think sometimes just having a, a, just a realistic perspective of who we are, and I say realistic because it is, it's who we are, uh, to, to have a realistic expectation uh, and, and a perspective of who we are gives us an opportunity to share some grace. It gives us an opportunity to share some mercy and gives us an opportunity to love people when maybe on the outside they don't seem too lovable. Well, yeah. You know, Jesus talked about this. He's like, yeah, he, when he's talking about loving your enemies, and he said, you love your enemies. And the disciples were really upset about that. They're like, what, how, do you, how do you love your enemies? And you think about it, that's kind of a bold statement to make. I mean, Jesus is making that statement. Because well, uh, he may say, he's like, well, everybody loves people who love them. There's nothing supernatural about that. People who love you, you naturally want to love them back because they're nice to you. They love you. And so there's nothing extraordinary about loving someone who loves you. But we're called to the extraordinary. And, and so Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, or Jesus, when he's, he, he's preaching you know, his sermons or whatever, he's preaching toward the extraordinary, not the ordinary. Right? You don't need to tell people, all right, okay, everybody, what I want you to do is breathe. All right, let's breathe. Let's all breathe. Because you're breathing already, right? It's kind of a natural process, and you're going to breathe. Well, that's kind of the same way. I mean, Jesus wasn't preaching for the ordinary. All right, everybody, let's, let's eat when you get hungry, okay? Everybody knows that. Right? The extraordinary is let's fast when you're hungry. You see, that, that's, what, that's not what you normally do. Or let's love people that don't love us. That's not what you normally do. And I'm using a little bit of a ridiculous example, but I, I want you to see it that way. It is kind of a ridiculous example. It's like if I'm going to motivate you to breathe, I'm going to have a 100% success rate. If the purpose of my teaching tonight is to get you guys breathing, and then we'll test it out at the end, and I'll make sure everybody's breathing. If no one dies, in the, in, if I don't kill anybody during this teaching tonight, I will have a 100% success rate that you'll be breathing at the end. Does that mean I, I'm an awesome teacher? No. No. I'm just encouraging you to do something you're already doing. Okay? 
There's no, there's no real trick to that. There's nothing to that. But what I need to do is look at it and say, oh, well, what's the extraordinary? What's the thing that you're not doing? What's the thing that maybe would be something that you'd want to look at doing? Something that you want to consider in your life? Maybe some change to the ordinary that's happening already? Well, that's extraordinary. If we can change something, if we can look at something differently, we can, we can understand something differently. Okay, that is extraordinary. And that's what Jesus was teaching toward. Love your enemies. Nobody loves their enemies. Well, Jesus does. And there's, there's an idea behind that in that as, as Jesus is talking about grace, he talks about love, he talks about forgiveness, he talks about mercy. All of those things are things that we've received. And so he reminds us, like, freely you've received, freely give. So we've received the extraordinary in our life. We've received that kind of love. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, in other words, we had no regard for God, we had no regard for Him, didn't care about Him, some of us even hated Him, and even during that time, He loved us. That's extraordinary. So we've received the extraordinary, and now He's encouraging us, now you give the extraordinary. You begin to practice that. You begin to share that. You begin to pour that out into other people's lives. Well, that's the challenge. So in this passage, somebody look at Romans 14.20. There's a, there's a groundwork for a lot of Paul's teaching. And this is specifically teaching to the Gentiles. These are the non-religious people. Or if they were religious, they were pagans. Polytheists. And so he lays a groundwork, some very basic things that he lays down here. So somebody have Romans 14.20? All right, so in Romans 14, Paul's talking about food. And it's helpful if you think of Titus, if you need to put something concrete to what he's talking about, you can put food there. And the idea behind it is that there's a, there's a groundwork that's been laid through the teachings of Paul to the Gentiles. And this groundwork, it speaks of choices. It speaks of us making choices that we may not make if we're selfish. Choices that are going to differentiate us from making the normal choices that we normally would make to the extraordinary. And that's really what he's addressing. That's what he is trying to challenge these people toward. In other words, you don't have to teach people to be selfish. You get that. You're born that way. Two, three-year-olds, they prove it. All you got to do is look at three, my, mine, mine, no. Come on, let's go. To, no. That's what two, three-year-olds do. And we're selfish, right? the way that we're, we come out. You don't have to teach people to be selfish. You don't have to teach people any of that. You don't have to teach people to be chaotic. People are naturally chaotic. You don't have to teach people. It's like, it's like you don't have to teach people how not to stand in line. Okay? You don't. They, they, will, they will naturally not stand in line. But... Most of you, at least when I was a kid, and I know that was a long time ago, if we wanted to go to the bathroom, when I was a little kid in, in grade school, we had to get in line to go to the bathroom. Go down the hallway to the bathroom. We had to get in line to go to the cafeteria. Want to eat? Get in line to go to the cafeteria. And so by doing that, it taught us, okay, this is how you become a, a very 
very cow-like member of society, and you can put yourself in line, and you, so you learn how to live in an orderly fashion and stand in lines. Well, not every culture does that. There are plenty of cultures in the world that are non-line forming. I've talked about this before. And so when you go down to the train station to buy a ticket in a non-line forming culture, there's no nice line waiting to get to the window for the ticket. You are just basically fighting it out all the way up to the window, pushing, shoving, moving people until you get to the window so you can buy your ticket to get on the train. But that's the way the culture operates. And there are plenty of cultures like that. And so, while we've gotten good, from the time we were little kids at standing in a line to wait for something, I'm not good at that because I hate standing in lines, but I'll do it. These other cultures didn't, didn't do that. And so then you got to get good at learning how to kind of weave and move through whatever it is, this crowd is, this mass of humanity to get something that you need. And that's why, that's where Erin comes in. Those of you that know Erin, she's little. And so she slides right through people. And she can get to the front of a line like that. She's been living in a non-line-forming culture for 14 years. That girl knows how to move through a mass of humanity. She's good at it. And I will hand her the money and send her off to do it. Because <laughs> I'm not that good at it. So in the... In the culture that Paul was living in, there, there were sacrifices being made to these polytheistic gods. And so they'd make sacrifice, and then they'd sell the meat at the market. So in other words, I'm going to sacrifice this bull or cow or whatever. I'm going to sacrifice this animal. And we're going to make sacrifice to whoever, Artemis or whoever it was. And so they'd make the sacrifice, they'd kill the animal, Sacrifice would be made, then they'd sell the meat. So you could buy the meat at the market. And so there were people that were living in that day, Christians that were living that day, they would go to the market and buy the meat and eat it. But then there were other Christians living in the day, they would go up there and they would say, was this meat sacrificed to idols? They wanted to know. And if it was, they wouldn't eat it. See, because they had this thing about it. And to them, if they ate that meat, then... That would be bad. It'd be sinful because that meat was sacrificed to idols. But like I said, the first group of Christians, man, they walked up the market, bought it, don't know anything about it, don't care, cook it up and eat it and enjoy it. So you got these two things going on at the same time. And the way Paul addresses this is this principle that you read in Titus. Now he makes it really clear here. That's why this is a great passage. And he makes the principle really clear in is this. He's like, you got the first guy. Is he wrong? No. You got the second guy. Is he wrong? No. No. Is the meat, is there something different about the meat the first guy buys to the second guy? No. No, it's not the meat. It's not that meat. That's not the problem. There ain't no issue with the meat. Okay, the issue becomes what happens in the people that are approaching it and how they see it. In other words, it's internal. The external is not the important part of that. It's the internal. So I look at Matthew 15:11. Cuz there's something really revolutionary about this. Matthew 15:11. 
right? And, and this is a return to the way God created us. What Jesus is reestablishing there in that passage, when you look at Matthew 15, he's reestablishing a principle, he's reestablishing a way that God made from the very beginning. You look at the Garden of Eden. God created the Garden of Eden. He said, all right, go on out there, till, do whatever you're going to do in the garden, work the garden, this is your paradise, you, you can do anything you want here, name the animals, all the stuff. He's like, this is yours. He's like, I got one thing. One thing, one limitation for you. Don't eat a tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can eat a tree of life, you can live forever. You can eat of every other tree in the garden. The only thing that you can't eat of is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was situated in the center of the garden. And so the way God made us to understand our world and understand who we are, he puts our limitation in the center. That's how he made us. Now we messed it up. Okay. I say we, when we I mean Adam and Eve. But we messed it up. And so there's all these generations that pass, and then God says, all right, I'm going to give my people, I'm going to, I'm going to make them a cohesive people. And the way that he did that is he gave them a law. And he's like, here's the law. You can't do this, 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 and this. And so if you read the law and you understand what the law is, you look at it and it creates a fence around the people's lives. In other words, you can do anything you want within this fence. You just can't cross that boundary. What boundary? Whatever the law said. Okay, so you can't do that. And so there's, there's all these other things, all this other life for living that takes place within it, but your limitation is now on the outside, which is not the way God created us. He made it that way, but that wasn't the original intent in the Garden of Eden. The limitation was in the center. And so as the prophets came after the law was given, and that fence around us, that, that outer limitation was around us, the prophets came and they began to prophesy. Look at Ezekiel, you look at Jeremiah. And what they prophesied was that he was going to write the law, he was going to put our limitation back into the center of us, on our hearts. That's what, That was his intent. And so he was restoring that which he had created. That his original intent in creation was that whatever limitation was going to come our way was going to come from in here, not out there. So what happened? Well, Jesus came and Jesus said, all right, here you go. This is a revolutionary statement. It's not what enters your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. That was revolutionary. You think about how much of the law was dietary. Well, yeah. And so they followed this dietary law. And so there were things, there were those foods that would defile them if they ate them. That's what they believed. And Jesus is saying, that's not really, no. No. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. People are super uncomfortable with what I just said. Especially if you've been a Christian for a while. You're really uncomfortable with that. You're really uncomfortable with the concept of the limitation coming from within you, from the center. You like rules. You like regulations. You like being told you can go this far, but no further. Stay within that and you know you're okay. We like that. People love that. 
They love those kind of rules. They love those kind of regulations. They know where they stand. They can see the fence over there. They can get up as close as they can, but not touch it. They're okay. They feel really good about that. That's what people love. Now, if the, if the limitation is in you, well, it has no, it, there's nothing to it about getting as close to the fence as you can. There is no fence. There, there, there is nothing that you're going to get close to but not cross. It has to do with what God is doing in here and what He's saying. And it comes down to an idea that if that limitation is in you, you're either going to obey it or you're going to disobey it, just like Adam and Eve did. They had a choice. We have choices. And that choice is, I'm either going to do what God tells me to do or I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. And you can say, well, you know, I'll do it a little bit. Well, that's not doing it. I'll kind of do it. That's just not doing it. So either we're going to follow after what God has for us or we're just not. And there's no judgment in that for me because I've done both. All right? I'm doing both. I'm, there's some days I'm right on it, man. It's like, yeah, whatever God, what you say, God, I'm on it. And other days, I'm running as fast as I can. And I'm not here trying to judge anybody. I'm not trying to tell you that everything's perfect. It's always going to be perfect. But I'm just telling you that we're super comfortable with a fence. We get uncomfortable knowing that the limitation is here. And I, I don't know what it is, but I mean, I've gotten in so much trouble for teaching this stuff over the years when I used to be part of uh, larger organizations, they hate this. And it's like, I didn't even say it. Jesus did. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. He literally said that. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. Well, I mean, and if you read commentaries on those verses, they, they, they bend over backwards to make sure they keep the fence around you. Well, that doesn't mean you can just, you know, Go out and do whatever. Well, yeah, obviously. Why would anyone think that? How is that a possibility? And this is the point I was trying to make. It's like, how is it a possibility that some fence that fences you in is better than the living God in you? How is that going to be better? How's a code of rules and regulations going to be better than the voice of God in your heart? How? I don't know how that's even possible. Well, people will just go crazy. Well, you know what? I've been doing this for a lot of years. A whole lot of years. Like 40. 40 years. And I've yet to see people just go crazy. Just hadn't seen it. And I've been teaching this pretty much the whole time. Because I read it, and I was like, oh, that's what Jesus said. I'll just say that. I made the mistake of saying something like this. on a, We had to take these uh, written exams, and uh, they, they were kind of a series of written exams I had to take. And then after each of the written exams, you had like an oral examination where there's a panel of three guys, and they just drill you with questions for hours. And I made the mistake of bringing this up at one of those. They asked me a direct question about it. And I just said, okay, well, this is what I believe. Jesus said, and I was just quoting Jesus. And they're looking at me like, mm, I don't know about that. You don't know about what? I mean, literally, I stood my ground because I was too young to know any better. And I stood my ground like, no, that's what Jesus said. I mean, didn't he? He said that it's red. It's in the red. It's in my Bible. 
And I know I'm sounding like I'm disrespectful, but I was, I guess, a little bit because I just couldn't understand it. And that was, that's honest. Honestly, I couldn't understand it because I just hadn't been in the circles enough, in Christian circles enough, to understand that you're not supposed to say that, even though Jesus did. Well, I want to say, it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what's in you and comes out of you that defiles you. That's why, you know, like, uh, some people love horror movies. It's getting towards Halloween, right? Some people love horror movies. They love to watch them. They get a little thrill out of it. They like it. Right? I don't. I don't watch horror movies. Because I don't like it. And I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like what it does in me. I don't, I don't like any of that kind of stuff. So am I right and they're wrong? Are they right and I'm wrong? Or maybe they don't have the same heart that I do. And maybe the same things don't trigger them that trigger me. And maybe they see it differently than the way I see it. And maybe there's something in me that's kind of messed up about it and I just don't want to put that into me and I choose not to watch it. Because I'm making a big boy decision not to do something that hurts me. But that doesn't mean I can judge the other person because they watch horror movies. I know some pretty strong Christians that enjoy horror movies. Right? That's none of my business. It isn't what goes in that defiles them. It's what comes out. That's what comes out of me defiles. So I don't put it in. I don't watch it. Because there's something in me, something in me, in me, my problem, that gets triggered by that, and I don't want to do that. But I can't judge the other person who doesn't get triggered and who actually enjoys it. Now, replace horror movie with whatever. Just go ahead. Let's say meat sacrificed to idols. We don't really have a lot of meat sacrificed to idols that we know of in our society, but I'd be, I think I'd be one of those kind of guys that just went and bought the meat and ate it. But you might not be like that. And so you got the same issue going on, right? I'm not defiled by that. I don't have anything in me that, that cares. But maybe you're brought up and maybe you were brought up in a pagan polytheistic home and your family made a big deal about buying the special meat that was sacrificed to the idol and you believed that was going to bring a blessing on the household or whatever it is. And so you don't want anything to do with that because it's all messed up and it associates things in your life with things from that and you don't want anything to do with it. Good. Fine. Get it? Because I could talk to you about all kinds of things. How about gambling? Right? Gambling is one of those things. Right? I don't gamble. Well, I can't say that. All right, I'll give you my parameters. You ready for my parameters? $20. $20. If I go to a casino, I will spend, or a racetrack, or anywhere I go, I have $20. 20 bucks. And I will make $2 bets or $0.05 five cent slots until I run out of those $20. And if I run out of those $20 and I've just wasted three hours, good times. If I sit at a racetrack and I lose $20 at the racetrack, but I've seen 10 races, good times. I invest that money into 
whatever the event that I'm at. And that's the way I see it, and that's what happens, and that's all there is to it. I'm not tempted to get any more money. I'm not tempted to put any more money on it. I'm not tempted to try to do something else with the money. I don't believe I'm going to make any money. I don't believe I'm going to win a bunch of money or anything else. And there's some days I leave with $20. Like at a racetrack. Not at the casino. I never leave any money at the casino. <laughs> but at the racetrack, so, you know, there'll be days I'll leave with $20. There's been certain days I've left with $40 but many, many more where I've left with zero. But I had a great time. All right? So gambling to me is a pastime like that. And I will invest X amount of dollars into that time. Now, other people are not like that. And they, it's uncontrollable. And so they will they'll spend what they got. They'll take what you got. They'll take what anybody they can find has got. And they'll be going, you know, whatever it's going to take, because they're finally going to, they know they're going to win, or whatever it is. And so, when I've been around people like that, I kind of figure out who those people are. I don't go to the casino with those people, all right? And maybe they should think about not doing the casino, I don't know. All I'm saying is, is that, that, that doesn't bother me, but it may bother them. You know, my dad was like that. My dad, he, he lost our house. He lost at least one of our cars all to gambling. All right? So I, I firsthand know how that works. I've seen it. I've lived it. You know, we, we, you know, losing stuff that, you know, you live in a house, right? You think it's good? Yeah, it's not good. We're gone. Or whatever that car was. It was a nice little Datsun, Nissan. We had gone, repossessed. Gambling does. Yeah, that, so that was a bad idea. But where was the problem? He and I could be at the same racetrack on the same day, which we were a few times, in Fort Erie. All right? I got my 20 bucks. That's all I got. He's losing the house and the car. Get it? You see, it, the, it's not the racetrack. It's not. It's whatever's in me or in him. That's the problem. That's what's coming out. And, and so pick something else. Pick it on, I mean, I'm picking on vices, but you, you think about it, it's like whatever it is. People feel that way drinking. People feel that way about all kinds of stuff. All right? And so we're going to make a rule. See, that's the Christian way. We'll make a rule. Nobody can do it. And so then everybody just sneaks around and does it, right? I mean, it's <laughs> kind of how it works. Can't do that. Oh, okay. I'll never do that. And then you sneak around and do it. Yeah, that's how it works. All right. Well, let's avoid that. Because it's fruitless. It's useless. That is just useless. And the principle that Paul has given us here is he's talking about, and, and that Jesus has given us, he's talking about the issue is in me. That's where the issue is. And And so realizing that, Seeing that, understanding that, I mean, that, that helps us to make a, a better decision, a big boy, big girl decision about the, the things that we're going to engage in and the places that we're going to find ourselves. Not that I care if you go, I can't go. And so that becomes more of an issue that has to do with me. He talks about the pure in Titus 1.15. Somebody look at Acts. Kind of interesting here. Acts fifteen nine. 
All right. And so that describes a mechanism of purity in our life. Is that Jesus purifies our hearts by faith. That's the mechanism. But the definition of pure just means of one thing. That's all it means. You got all kinds of connotations about what you think pure is. Pure is, I mean, in a denotative fashion, pure is just one thing. That's what it is. What thing? Anything. You could have pure gold, right? What does that mean? Nothing else in it. It's just gold. Pure silver. It's just silver. Pure what? Whatever. It, it just means of one substance. That's what the word means. And so when you read it, and, and I hope you can remember that as you're reading through and you start seeing that word in different places in the Scriptures where it talks about the pure. Well, He makes us pure by faith. In other words, we begin to believe. We begin to take hold of God. And He begin, and all the things that are distracting and all the things that are pulling us and all the things that are tugging on us and all the things that are entering in and, and making us think or whatever it is, you know, going back and forth or here or there in our minds, they fall away. There's a purity. There's one thing. There's one thing that matters. There's one thing that I care about. There's one thing that's going to last. There's one thing that means anything. And finding that one thing, Jesus describes it as a pearl of great price, but finding that one thing, you go and sell everything you have to obtain it. That's purity. And that's what He is calling us to. That's what He is leading us toward by faith. And so when Paul says to the pure, well, they're the people of one thing, one substance. That's who they are. They're the simple. They're the disciple. They're the child that Jesus describes. That's who the pure are. There's nothing else. It's really simple. It's really straightforward. But that's, I believe, the work that God wants to do in us. It's simplicity. We want to complicate things because then we don't have to do it. But the simpler something is, the greater the demand to respond to it. And it's simple instruction, simple leading, simple guiding. The, the, the person that is pure of heart, Paul describes me, he's like, if you're pure, all things are pure. And he can say that with confidence. Because what he's saying is, there's nothing on the outside that's going to defile you. Because Jesus taught that. And so did Paul. But Jesus taught that. It's not the outside stuff that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. And so it's not a big stretch for Paul to say that the pure, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, what can't the pure do? The pure can do whatever they want. Why? Because there's nothing defiling coming out of them. Nothing. And so the meat, where is it sacrificed? Pure don't care. The, 
you know, whatever all the other things are that I was mentioning, and there's such a myriad of things that I could be talking about with that, but the pure has the right motivation. They're not being defiled through something coming out of them. So Paul can say with a confidence, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, none of us are completely pure. None of us are completely one thing. You know, we still are, are moving in that direction. Hopefully, we're moving in that direction to simplicity. We're moving in that direction toward childlikeness. We're moving in that direction toward that one thing, hopefully. But as we move in that direction, like a lot of the things that used to bother us or maybe had bothered us in the past really don't matter anymore. Who cares? So the pure, he says all things are pure. And this applies more than just food. So I look at Acts 10.14. Acts 10.14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Read the next verse. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Alright. So, this is a situation where Jesus is sending Peter to the Gentiles. Peter had a bias. He had uh, a prejudice against going to the Gentiles. He's not supposed to go there. He's not supposed to be in their house. He's not supposed to be talking to them. He's not supposed to do anything with them. And so, he, he appeared, he gave him this vision where the sheet was let down from heaven and it had all these unclean animals on it. And then the voice said to him, Arise, kill, and eat. And Peter argued with him. He's like, Well, I know I've never eaten anything like this. I, I don't eat these in unclean animals. No. And God's response to that was, If I tell you it's clean, it's clean. And so there was something going on in Peter's life where this is the process I'm talking about of simplification. He's removing the complexity, at least in this situation, of the food. But it's applied to more than just food. He's about to send him into a house full of people, in the house of Cornelius. He's about to send him to real people that wanted to hear the real gospel that needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where he was sending him. And so this had a lot more to do with more than food. Although food was what they were using as the illustration. Food was what God was speaking to Peter through. It was going to apply to something that was about to take place. And this would be a learning moment. Now, did he learn the full lesson here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But he learned something. And it started him on to this path, a path of simplification for his life. But he wouldn't get there in one time. And he wouldn't get there in, in one instance or one experience. That wasn't going to, was going to happen. One vision wasn't going to get him there. But it was a path that was leading him toward that. And so this is that process I was talking about. God wants to simplify things for you. All right, how's he going to do it? Stuff like this. He's going to challenge the way you think about something, tell you it's clean, and you're going to argue with him about it. <coughs> And he's going to remind you, whatever I say is clean, is clean. There ain't no reason to argue about it. And he will begin to challenge your thoughts, begin to challenge the way you see things, begin to challenge the way you react to things. 
He will put you in situations to do that. Those of you who have ever taken the internship, that is a part of the internship where you will be challenged with things that you came into that program thinking were wrong. And you'll be challenged to think about it differently. And there's a reason for that because that's part of this process we're looking at here. The things that take place in church, that they exist to challenge preconceptions about the way people see things, what's right, what's wrong, what's Christian, what's not Christian, all that kind of stuff. They just are. And, and they exist for a reason. We could play nice and do everything the way everybody else does it. We could. And then no one would ever be challenged. And everybody would be happy. No one would ever judge us. And no one would ever leave here in a huff. And no one would be upset. Yeah, but that's not change. That's like me telling you to breathe, right? That's like me telling you to breathe. 100% success rate. Well, we don't need that kind of success rate. Not if we're going to make disciples. We don't need that kind of success rate if we're actually going to see people's lives change. See, things have to be challenged. Things have to be be brought to the forefront if if we're going to ever see anything change in our lives. And so this simplification process, things have to be challenged in order to see that happen. It's all right. We don't like it, but it's all right. It's part of growth and it's part of life and it's part, it's uncomfortable. Right. Well, change is uncomfortable. Change is always uncomfortable, almost always. Because we've been doing something a certain way, we've been thinking about something a certain way, and all of a sudden we're being challenged not to think about it that way anymore. That's uncomfortable. Understood. I understand that. But I think it's a needed part of the process. And so it's more than just food, our actions of everyday life. But I want, I'm going to say something here. And I want you to understand this as we're going through our life, that these things on the outside are are not inherently right or wrong. It has to do with what's in you. That's what it has to do with. It has to do with what's in you, what's in me. You see, we're not good, and this is this is and I've talked about this before, and I'm only going to touch on this for a second, but this is where the fallacy of the knowledge of good and evil comes in. That was sin. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It got them kicked out of paradise and cursed. A curse that we still uh, that, that still exists in the world today. And so we're not good at the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because we're never meant to have it. But all this stuff of, of looking at actions on the outside is right or wrong, that's the knowledge of good and evil. We're just not good at it. Now, the limitation in the middle, in the center... Well, that's God saying yay and nay. He's really good at it. And so what needs to happen is that instead of us trying to figure it all out, good, bad, whatever, God, what do you have for me? And get really good at hearing His voice and responding to Him. That's simplicity. And so He says that the defiled the unbelieving or the polluted, the mixed up. So you got the pure, meaning of one thing. Then you got the defiled, meaning that there's all kinds of stuff mixed in with it. It's like not not one thing. It, there's all kinds of things happening. It's polluted. It's mixed up. Well, he says nothing is pure then. Right? Right? 
That, that absolutely. So, so anything, anything could be turned to evil in the polluted person. Why? Well, because they can't see it for what it is. They're going to see it for whatever their heart is responding to. They're going to see it for whatever their spirit is responding to. They're going to see it for whatever inside of them is responding to. It can't be pure because they're polluted. And so there's all these things around us as we go, go through this process and we're on this path toward purity and toward oneness and toward this one thing. There's, this, there's, this, there's all these things in us that they're going to appear to be this, that, evil, unpure, whatever it is, but understanding that's coming from here in me. That's why I'm not judging the other person who doesn't see it that way. That's why I'm not judging the other person that participates in something that I can't participate in. That's why I'm not judging the other person that is able to listen to stuff that I can't listen to or see stuff that I can't see because of what's wrong with me. But I have to understand that. It's me. And so, he says the mind is defiled. Well, that's our willing and our thinking parts. And, and that, that includes our thoughts and, and includes our wishes, our purposes, our activities, our understanding. And they get blinded and it gets perverted and gets polluted. Well, right, because there's strong things going on in us. And so we don't see things for as they really are. We get some distorted view. But if you understand your view is distorted, I think that really helps. Especially in areas where you happen to be weak. Areas where you happen to be fighting stuff inside of you. To understand that your view is distorted of those things. Okay, go back to grace and mercy and patience and love in other people's lives. You know, I, I, I can't even describe to you how I feel when people get super judgmental. I can't describe to you what that does inside of me. And it's not because... They're, they're being mean to me. That's not it. It's something, and, and I don't, I can't exactly describe it, but it's almost like it's like whatever is going on in them is just crying out through that. Whatever thing that's messed up or twisted in them is just crying out through that judgment. And and it, I don't know, it like breaks my heart. It is irritating too, but it breaks my heart more than it's irritating. He also speaks of our conscience being defiled. And I want to define conscience as just that part of us that's attached to God, it's attached to His Word. Is attached to his will. That's that part of us is attached to his word and his will. And it's really our safeguard. And that's the point where we say, okay, well, I'm going to do what he says or I'm not. But that's our safeguard. You got like a 50% chance every time or greater. But either yay or nay. And so as we learn to hear the voice of God, as we learn to follow after His will, as we learn to, to get in line with what He has for us, as we learn 
that he has our best interests in mind and he wants the best for us and so we want to align ourselves with him. As we learn those kind of things that take time and experience, but we start learning those kinds of things, well, it becomes easier to just say yes. And it's through that process of saying yes that we begin to understand, well, that's where our real safety is, is in that, is in his will, his purpose, and his plan for our lives. That's where our real safety exists. All that false safety that we create for ourselves, that doesn't do us any good. And you kind of figure that out after a while, hopefully, that as much as you try to control in your life and you create this safe space, it's just not safe. You just kind of think it is. Because it's an illusion. But real safety exists when we find ourselves in His will, His purpose and His plan, and we really trust Him in that and realize that's our safety. That's our safeguard. That's where God has for us. And, and you look at the disciples, man, they, they found their safety in that. And yeah, I know they were all martyred except for John. And, but, and I understand that. But that was their lives being poured out for a purpose and for a reason. It's like that whole idea of I want to pour my life out and mean something, not just kind of fade away. I'm really not interested in that. I want something more for what I'm doing and why I exist and, and my, my purposes and why God has me here. I want to see something more. And I want to believe for something more. So we find that in the middle of Him. His purpose, His plan, His will. That which He puts in our heart. What He puts in our spirit. What He puts into the center of us. That's where you find it. That's where you're going to find it. And all I want to say, and, and I'm going to kind of end it with this. I'm not... And I want you to understand me. We all have defilement in us. All of us. We're not perfect beings. We're humans. And we exist in the human condition. And so understand that. But part of understanding that, and it's why Jesus talks about this a lot, is as we understand who we really are. I mean, in reality, not just who we want to be, and I'm coming back to where I started here. Not, where, not who we want to be, but who we actually are. That, I pray, will activate that grace and that mercy and that love and that patience and that long-suffering for the other. Who's the other? Whoever the other is. But I pray that as we understand ourselves a little bit more, we can love the other a little bit more. And I know that's a lofty idea. I know. I get it. That is the supernatural. That's the uncommon. Yeah. It is. But like I said from the start, we didn't come here for me to tell you to breathe. We came here so you could be challenged towards something that's uncommon. Something that might be difficult. 
something that not everyone is doing, something that you don't do naturally, the extraordinary. And that is extraordinary. And so if I was able to give you a little bit of philosophical background to this, amen. If that's helping you understand some of the things that Paul's talking about here, awesome. Because, like I said, this is a theme for him. This isn't a one-time deal writing to Titus. It's a theme that you see throughout his writings. Then you look at Peter. It's a theme in the life of Peter. You look at Jesus. It's a theme in the teaching of Jesus. It's a restoration of how God made us to be. So let's participate in that actively. I'm going to take a few moments to pray. And I want to encourage you to think about uh, just the reality of who you are, number one. But really to use this as an opportunity to, to look for the extraordinary, to commit to the extraordinary, to, to actually have an expectation for the extraordinary in your life. Not an expectation for the humdrum, not an expectation for the stuff you're already doing, but something different, something bigger, something better. That we can actually participate down that path in our life of that one thing. Being that one thing. And the little things falling away, some of the big things falling away, but what's left is Jesus. And finding ourselves on that path. Moving forward. Becoming. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, you got something big for us. We may not see it. We may not even have an expectation for it, but I pray you'd change that. I'd ask that in our lives we would begin to expect more. That we're in touch with and we're in communion with the living God of the universe who can do anything, anything. And so I pray that we would have a bigger expectation of some of the stuff that you want to do in us, some of the stuff that you're going to do in us. Bigger expectation, God, of, of change and of becoming and of being more. God, I thank you that you're doing a work of simplicity, of ever-increasing simplicity in our lives. And I pray that we'd embrace that. You're doing a work of childlikeness in our life, and I pray that we would in, embrace that. You're doing a work of, of, of taking things that seem so complicated and making them understandable. I pray, God, that we would really participate in that. We want to be one thing. We want to be pure. We want to be worried about nothing but you. And so, God, I pray that you would take some of the things that are hanging off, some of the things that are hanging on, some of the things that are, are crowding in or whatever. I pray, God, you begin to strip some of those things off of us, things that don't matter, things that don't, don't, don't have any bearing, that aren't going to matter in five years, not going to matter in two years, not going to matter in one year, definitely not going to matter in ten years. They just begin to fall off. And, God, I pray even tonight, starting tonight, there would be a new simplicity over us. Something more. Just a little bit lighter. Just a little bit clearer. 
just a little bit more one thing tonight. Tonight. So God, I pray that you teach us to not judge. I pray you teach us what it means to be patient. I pray, God, that we would move into more of the extraordinary in our dealings with others and our responses to you. I pray we'd be a people of grace, people of mercy, people of real big love, people of patience, and a people of long-suffering. Because you're all that to us. And more. Freely we have received. Yeah. Thanks, God. Just uh, as you're sitting there, I'm just going to take a moment for this. Just shed some things spiritually. If you understand what I'm saying, good. If you don't, that's okay. If you understand what I'm saying, just begin to shed some things. Just let go. Just let go. Things you've been dragging behind you, let it go. Things that you've been holding on to, let it go. Yeah. You got you got some anger that you're holding on to, let that go. Got bitterness that you're holding on to, just just loosen your grip. Let it go. It's not going to help you. Not, it's hurting you and hurting others. Stop. Man. Dragging around some unforgiveness. Let it go. Let it go. Judgments. Let them go. Yeah. Yeah, we're just not made this way. Made for a real simple life of freedom and liberty. A real simple life of loving each other. That's how we're made. That's how we're built. So I pray we just let go of the stuff. It's getting in the way of that kind of living. So tonight, I, I give you thanks. I pray a cleansing. Hmm. I pray a cleansing over your people. I pray a liberty over your people. Yeah. They would walk a little less encumbered out of this place tonight. I give you thanks. Continue your work in us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Let's be by saying amen. Amen. God bless you. Good to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of the faith community, like the community that. Well, yeah, see, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of Chaplaincy of Syracuse University, 
UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 